this evening we're going to be considering the self-existence and self-sufficiency of God. So let me pray and then I'll give some introductory remarks and, and then we'll jump into several texts of Scripture. Father, we come into your presence once again with thanksgiving and I trust with hopeful expectancy that you would come and visit with us and teach us and reveal more of yourself to us and give us a greater understanding, enlighten our eyes that we might better understand you, the God with whom we have to do, that we might better understand our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us, that we might better understand the Holy Spirit and His work in us and through us. We need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, Lord, and we can't do that on our own. So this is our request. This is what we're asking, that you would do that for us. And that knowing you, we would learn to trust you and to obey you and to serve you in the world as you've called us. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're studying the attributes of God in this, this workbook. That's usually how a study like this is summarized. The attributes of God. Various things that God has revealed about Himself to us in His Word. And though we do study these things distinctly, these things that God has revealed, we study them separately and distinctly Keep in mind that these are not a bunch of separate character traits or qualities, but rather they are simply the true and living God Himself from our perspective viewed from various angles. And in, we might say in various uh, shadows of light. And also keep in mind that what we're saying applies to all three persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we said that early on as we, we dealt with some of the matters of the Trinity. Now that we, we drew the persons out and considered them, we come back to study the one true God Himself. And the Father is that God, the Son is that God, the Spirit is that God. The three are one. So everything that we're saying applies to God as He is in Himself and would apply to all three persons as they share the divine essence. Now I want to briefly remind you of what we considered last Lord's Day under the topic of God's eternity because I think there might be a helpful connection between that attribute and what we are seeing this evening. We said God is eternal and to explain that as it pertains to what we know and experience as time a a moment by moment measure of creaturely mutation God has no such experience. God is infinite with regard to time, meaning He's not subject to its limits or its measures or its boundaries. Herman Bovink, we read this quote, The limitations of finite creatures do not apply to God. For, for God, all of what we think of as time, all for God is one indivisible speck of changeless present. 
George Swinnick said, He enjoys his whole eternity every moment. And A.A. Hodge says, In God, all is now. That's what we mean by eternity. He's not subject to time. For him, all is now. So terms like beginning and middle and end do not apply to God. Terms like before and after do not apply to God Himself. He has no beginning and no end. So there was no before God. And there will not be an after God. God is eternal. Now, that leads us to this topic, the self-existence and self-sufficiency of God. Having established that God has no beginning, one might wonder, or some of you children might be thinking, where did God come from? How did God come to be? In our finite creaturely minds limited as they are by our experience, which is time, we might try to close our eyes and go backwards in time as far as we can. We, we go all the way back to Genesis 1-1 and maybe we try to go a little bit further and we know God is there because He had to be there in the beginning when He created the heavens and the earth. So we know He was there before that. And then we might try to think back even further and attempt to trace God to some starting point or, or something. We go in our imaginations as far back as we can and we, we ask, what was before God? Or what was it like before God? Or how did He enter into the scene? Or maybe you've thought in your minds, who made God? Do you ever considered that question? You ever thought about that? Who made God? Where did He come from? Well, our answer, the answer to those questions is found in the doctrine of God's self-existence and self-sufficiency. Now, there are really two distinct points being made there. God is self-existent and God is self-sufficient. So let me break those two up first. To say that God is self-existent is to answer the question, who made God? Or where did God come from? Well, the answer is, no one made God. God did not come from anywhere. God has always been. Remember, God is eternal. Now, the reason these kind of questions come into our minds is because from our experience, from a creaturely standpoint, everything comes from something. Everything, the very word exist means to be from or out of something else. As I've said before, sort of tongue-in-cheekly, it is actually accurate to say God does not exist because He does not come from out of anything. We exist, that is to say, we have our being or our essence from something besides ourselves. We cannot be the source of our own existence because then we would have to have been before we came to be. That w With us, it is true. We can use phrases like before us. Some of you kids probably got pictures of your parents. Maybe your parents will show you some pictures. They'll say, you know, this is me when I was a teenager. That was before you. You weren't around. For with us, there is a before us 
And should the Lord tarry, there will be an after us. People, maybe a few people, a handful of people might talk about, say your name. Back when Grandpa so-and-so, back when Grandma so-and-so was alive. I remember they used to say this and they used to say that. And you will be gone in, in an earthly sense. There was a time when we were not. So we, we can't uh, be the source of our own existence because we would have to exist before we actually exist. But God, remember, He is eternal. His being is not out of or from anything other than Himself. That's what we're saying. He is self-existent. His being can only be traced back to His being. This particular attribute is referred to as the aseity of God. God is ase. That means God is from Himself or of Himself. Listen to some more statements from the men of the past. William Ames says, God exists of Himself. That is to say, not from another or of another or by another or by reason of another. George Swinnick, his being is from himself. Herman Bovink, whatever God is, he is of himself. Louis Burkhoff, he has the ground of his existence in himself. He exists by necessity of his own being. He is because he is. He comes from him, we might say, even though even that is not actually accurate because he doesn't come from. He simply is. That's God's self-existence. Secondly, Self-sufficiency. To say that God is self-sufficient is to simply take that doctrine of self-existence and extend it on out. Seeing as God exists of Himself, then we would deduce that God is sufficient for Himself. Self-sufficient. To speak in human terms, God is all that God needs. To be God. God has no need really because He is. If God is, He has no need because He is all that He needs. To put it negatively, we would say God needs nothing outside of Himself to be who He is. That re relates back to the simplicity of God. Nothing, God doesn't need anything not God to be God. He is. Positively, that would be to assert His independence. God is independent. He, he is not dependent on anything. Swinnick again, God is beholden to none. That's an old word that means indebted. He's indebted to nothing. He, God does not need to point to anything and say, well, I'm, I'm indebted to that thing for my existence or my, my continued existence. Bovink, He depends on nothing. Some would say that aseity... God's self-existence, is just God's self-sufficiency applied to existence. And then God's independence is His self-sufficiency just across the board, everything. His existence, His attributes, His decrees, His works. He is independent in all of those things, in need of nothing. To connect this back to God's eternity... Since God experience, experiences no sequence of moments, then He needs no moment-by-moment moment sustenance. He's self-sufficient. You see, we are constrained by a moment-by-moment moment existence. 
We're not self-existent and we're not self-sufficient. We need air. We need food. We need water. We need the ongoing biological processes in our bodies to keep us alive from one moment to the next. We are not air. We are not food. We are not our biological processes. We need those things which are not us to make us who we are and to keep us alive. Our very heartbeats are marking off the sequence of moments by which we live. And if that stops, we cease to be. But God is life itself. He is life. He needs nothing. Again, He is because He is. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. So that's these two ideas. Now let's, with that being said, let's turn to the book and, and see how this is opened up from the Scriptures. And I'll read the opening paragraph. He says, One of the most awe-inspiring and humbling truths about God is that He is absolutely free from any need or dependence. His existence... The fulfillment of His will and His happiness or good pleasure do not depend on anyone or anything outside of Himself. He is the only being who is truly self-existent, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, independent and free. All other beings derive their life and blessedness from God. But all that is necessary for God's existence and perfect happiness He finds in Himself. God has no lack or need and is dependent upon no one. To teach or even suggest that God made, uh, made man because he was lonely or incomplete is a gross contradiction of the Scriptures. God did not create the universe or man because he had a need, but because he desired to make known the superabundance of his perfections, glory, and goodness. In other words, we could say, God has done nothing in order to get but He has done everything in order to give. He does not act in order to receive. He has acted in order to reveal Himself to us. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He has no need. Now then at number one, and we can turn to Exodus chapter 3, and we'll see this again in the name of God. As you're turning, I'll read. It says, In the Scriptures a name has great significance in that it often reveals something about the one who bears it. And then we have the name of God from Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's name, I am who I am. What does that communicate to us? It communicates to us that He is who He is apart from anything outside or of or beside Himself. And remember the imagery that's used here. Go back to verses 1 to 3 of this chapter. 
Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. That's the imagery. The bush is burning, but it is not consumed. It needed no fuel. It it consumed no resources. You see, when when a wildfire rages, that's a terrible thing. People get nervous. People get afraid. Why? Because wherever the fire goes, in order to burn, it has to consume everything in its path. Everything is fine in front of the fire. Everything is gone behind the fire because the fire consumes everything. But here we have God revealing Himself in a bush that is burning but it's not consumed. It's not turning black. No, no ashes are falling to the ground. There probably wasn't even any smoke going up in the air. Just a flame in a bush. That's the picture. God is self-existent and self-sufficient. He needs no resource. He burns no fuel. He is His own life. And His name is I Am. And think about how contrary this is to all creation, but especially to mankind. Our whole lives are spent in activities which ultimately are funneling toward our own maintenance and existence. Even our most inert and mindless habit, sleeping, we have to do or we die. We lay down and sleep in order to maintain life, in order to keep going. We eat and drink and think all all of these things. We work to make money so we can buy food. We provide shelter for ourselves. Everything funnels into life sustenance. But God is the complete opposite. He's totally other than. God is pure, eternal act. We might say infinite, immutable, ever-flowing power from eternity and yet not one thing He does is in order to maintain His existence. He just just is pure, infinite power, always acting, never resting, and yet consuming nothing, needing nothing. He just is by His own existence. Psalm 121, 3 and 4 says, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He doesn't need to rest. Doesn't need to take a break. Doesn't need to refuel. Doesn't need to stock up. As others have said, there's no potential in God. He doesn't store up so that He can then exert. He's pure eternal exertion with no storage. He simply is. Number two says, What do the following scriptures teach us about the self-existence? and self-sufficiency of God, and how do such attributes demonstrate God's greatness? So let's look now at Psalm 36. Psalm 36, verses 6 through 9.
beginning at the latter part of verse 6. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. What does this text teach us? There's two questions asked. What does it teach us? It teaches God preserves man and beast. God is the source of life for all creatures. Mankind finds his refuge in God. Men are filled and delighted by God. God is the fountain of life. Notice God is always the giver. Creation and mankind in particular are always the recipients. God is never the recipient. God needs no preservation. God needs no refuge. God needs no filling. God needs no object to satisfy His delights. God is the fountain of life. He's the fountain of His own life and the life of all things. Now, how do such attributes demonstrate God's greatness? Well, we see again that God is wonderfully greater, far beyond all created things. It's essential to the creator-creature distinction that He is all give and we are all receive. If we don't eat, we die. If we don't drink, we die. If we don't sleep, we die. If it doesn't rain, the grass dies. If it's not maintained, wood will rot. Without gas, the car doesn't go. Without a covering, the metal will rust. You see, all that's required... For the corrosion and crumbling of created things is just the passing of time. Just give it some time and it will corrode. But with God it is not so. He's greater than all creatures because with God there is no passing of time. He's eternal and self-existent and self-sufficient. The next text is John 5, 26. Turn there. This states the matter even more explicitly, and hopefully you'll understand how the language relates to self-existence and self-sufficiency. God being life and having life in Himself, He is self-existent, self-sufficient. And our Lord says in John 5, 26, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. What does this text teach us? This passage shows that both the Father and the Son have life in themselves. They do not need to look outside of themselves for life. Each, as true God, is self-existent and self-sufficient. And how does this demonstrate God's greatness? Again, we see God is utterly independent. Father has life, the Son has life, both of them in Himself. The note there says God's life or existence is not derived from anyone or anything outside of Himself. He is life. It is His very nature to exist. The existence of all other things, visible or invisible, animate or inanimate, depends upon Him. 
Only God is truly free of need or dependence. He's independent, self-existent, self-sufficient, in need of nothing. The next passage is Acts chapter 17. Turn there. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. The notes, it says, The self-sufficiency of God demonstrates His infinite greatness and His exalted place above His creation. All things depend upon Him for their very existence, yet He depends upon no one. In Acts 17, 22 to 31, we find the Apostle Paul's sermon to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill, In verses 24 and 25, he refutes their idolatrous views by making three very important declarations about the true and living God. And it's asked, what do these declarations teach us about the self-sufficiency of God and His relationship to His creation? So let's read the passage now, beginning in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and and exist." As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now he draws attention to three statements. Verse 24, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. There's a reference to Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, and thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. In 1 Kings 8.27, Solomon prayed, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. This is not a New Testament phenomenon. It's basic to the God of the Bible. He does not dwell in temples made by hands. No temple that was ever made was made in order that God might come and be restrained or constrained by that thing. He doesn't need that. Now what is this? Declaration teach us about the self-sufficiency of God and His relationship to His creation. Well, as pertains worship, remember, temples are places of worship. As it pertains our worship, God is not limited to things like temples or buildings. 
God does not wait for us to construct an edifice so that He can then come and live in it and not leave. Nor is God's presence or His blessing in worship restrained to certain places at certain times. Our, our confession of faith says in, in chapter 22, paragraph 6, neither prayer nor any thought part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or toward which it is directed. They're being opposed to God making His name to dwell in Jerusalem under the old covenant. But even then, as we just read, as Solomon built the temple, he said, God, God's not coming and living in this building. But they were commanded and expected to turn and pray in that direction. Under the new covenant, it's not so. It's a, it goes on, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each by one, each one by himself, so more solemnly in public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by His word or providence calleth thereunto. In other words, God's worship is not tied to some specific place because God does not need those places. Yes, public assemblies are necessary, but not as they are tied to a physical building. A group of people can assemble anywhere and, and worship God. He does not need or dwell in temples made by hands. The second thing we see in verse 25, nor is He served by human hands. God is not served by human hands. Nothing that we do is providing God with anything that he needs, or even a needless addition. But if God doesn't need anything, of course I'm not giving him anything he needs. You're not even giving him things that he don't need. He's not served. What does this teach us? Nothing you or I do helps God. Nothing you or I do is lending him aid. Our money does not free him up to exert power in world missions. Our prayers do not release Him to act in the world. Our church attendance does not beef up His ego. We do not do God any favors in anything. He's not served by our hands. All of our best services in worship to God simply provide more which needs to be cleansed by the blood and intercession of His Son. More weakness in which... He makes His own self-sufficiency known. All of our preaching is just an attempt to obey God and an occasion wherein we are simply trusting that He would accompany that occasion with His own mighty self-sufficient power. But we're not opening up to Him an opportunity so that He can now do otherwise than He could do prior. He's not served by human hands. The next statement, as though he needed anything. Or to put it another way, God does not need anything. And what does this teach us about his relationship to his creation? Creation does not exist because God had a need or a lack or a want of any kind in himself that he couldn't fulfill. God is in himself infinitely incomprehensibly happy. He is eternal, boundless joy in Himself. If He had never said, let there be light. If He had never said, let us make man. 
He would be no less infinitely, incomprehensibly, eternally, boundlessly joyful. He needs nothing. He gets nothing from us. Again, He created to show us what He is like, even if we had never been, and then to bring us into that joy for ourselves with Him, but not because He needed. He needs nothing. Number four, turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, verses 8 through 15. I think I'm, I'm going to actually read verses 7 through 15. The question again, what does this passage teach us about these attributes of God and our relationship with Him? Does God need anything? And what does God desire from His people? Psalm 50, beginning in verse 7 through verse 15. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. What does this teach us? Many people read this portion of Scripture as if God is describing Himself as the bottomless vending machine. As if what God is saying is, Look, I own everything, and I can give you everything. It's all mine, and I can give it to you. And they take a text about how God does not need them or their worship and they twist it to be about what they can get out of God as if God were serving them or worshiping them. What's he saying here? Notice the things that he mentions. Your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, the young bull, the male goats, the flesh of bulls, the blood of male goats. The theme is worship. The worship, the offerings that Israel would bring or were commanded to bring. But before all of that, he says, I am God. You're God. Read it that way. I'm God. I'm your God. That's what he's saying. You come to worship me. I don't receive from you. I'm God. You offer sacrifices to me as worship. I don't need your offerings. Every beast is mine. Every bird is mine. All the cattle, all the hills are mine. God is simply stating His godness to them. He's saying, you bring me in worship all of the things I already own. I'm God, you see. He's trying to get that to them. I'm God. You're not serving me. You're not giving me anything. So the question is, does God need anything from us? Of course not. He's reminding them and us of how, how all this works. This is the, the structure of the whole setup. 
He is God. We are His people. He is God. We worship Him. He is God. We obey Him. He is God. He needs nothing from us. We give to Him in worship. As worship to Him. Because He's God. And what does God desire from His people? It says, He says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Just say thank you. Don't, you're not giving Him anything. He gave you everything. Just say thank you. Admit. That's what thanksgiving is. Admitting. He gave it to me. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. What's he saying? Treat me as the God that I am. I'm going to give, 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 give. You say thank you. You obey me. I will rescue you. You honor me. He's God. Give Him thanks. Pay your vows. When you're helpless, call upon Him. He does the rescuing and we do the honoring. We honor Him as God. That's what He's saying. He's God. In other words, what does God desire of His people? He desires that we sanctify Him in our hearts as God and treat Him as God and worship Him as God and depend fully upon Him as God, utterly helpless before Him. He's God. We don't give to Him. He gives everything to us. And the note says, God does not need our help or even our sacrifices. What God desires from His people is trust, thanksgiving, and obedience. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. To draw to a conclusion, I want to draw, go back to one of the statements that was made in the opening paragraph. It said, His existence, the fulfillment of His will, and His happiness or good pleasure do not depend on anything or anyone outside of Himself. With regard to His will, Daniel 4.35 says, He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. God is not waiting on any creature to, to do step one in order to then proceed with step number two in His will. He does as He pleases. Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. What is He dependent upon? His pleasure, His happiness, His decree, His, de His desires. That's what He depends upon, not us. All that God depends upon for His action is His own good pleasure. With regard to His counsel, Psalm 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. We do not read that the counsel of the Lord waits to see if men will obey, if men will pray enough, if men will preach enough before it can stand. We do not read that God waits to see if a generation will do this or that before He can finally execute what He really wants to do in the world. God is not waiting to see our faith or hear our prayers before He does what He has determined to do. Remember, our faith, our prayers, they're like that worship of Israel. We're just returning back to Him what He's given to us. 
He gives us the faith. He puts the prayers in us. We're just giving back to Him. We depend upon Him. He does not depend upon us. He's the only being who is truly free. Turn with me to to Micah chapter 6. These are just some some thoughts that I, I had typed up on my phone as I thought about this Friday, I think, and I think this makes a good conclusion. Micah 6, verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Remember that if God is self-sufficient, if God is sufficient enough for God... That's what that means. Then He's sufficient enough for us. From this this passage, the question is, is essentially asked, what might I give God to pay for my sins? Maybe you think, maybe I'll give Him some obedience tomorrow to pay for my sins today. Or maybe like the prophet, you say, maybe I'll just give the life of my firstborn to pay for my sins. God is not served by human hands. God does not need your offerings. You have nothing to give to Him to make atonement for your sins. If you even attempted to give Him an offering to make an atonement for your sins, He would be offended. Why? Because He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need your offerings. God is not served by human hands in any matter, especially when it comes to satisfying divine wrath or snuffing out divine wrath, satisfying divine justice, and snuffing out divine wrath. No, God is self-existent and self-sufficient. He alone can provide the remedy for offended justice. And how does He do it? Does He he look outside of Himself? I'm going to find something to grab outside of me to pacify me? No, God is self-sufficient. He alone can provide the remedy for His own offended justice. He's self-sufficient. And so he needs to look no further than himself in his own heart and even within his own bosom. And that's what he's done in the sending of his own son, who is God. God is self-sufficient. God has provided for the satisfaction of his justice and the swallowing of his wrath in his own self through the sacrifice of his son. Let's all, sinners as we are, and dependent as we are, look to Him who is self-sufficient and to Him alone for salvation. Let's pray.